and welcome to The Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. Taken together, these economic sanctions are a new kind of economic statecraft with a power to inflict damage that rivals military might. Those were the words of President Biden in March 2022. A year and a half later, the world seems to have settled into a new horrible normal instead. Did leaders overpromise what economic sanctions could deliver, or are they a war of attrition during which we must hold our nerve? My guest today is an emeritus professor of economics at the University of Warwick, with a lifelong research focus on Russian and international economic theory, and a keen interest in the effect of economic sanctions. Welcome back to the bunker, Professor Mark Harrison. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Mark The promise back in February and March last year was that economic sanctions will bring Russia to its knees. Some now say that they have resulted in what the Wall Street Journal recently described as another stalemate. What do you think is the reality? I think it's not so much another stalemate as the same stalemate that we see on the battlefield. You can call on sanctions to perform various functions and often they're classified as incentivizing better behavior or as uh, signaling uh, disapproval and helping to coordinate international action or uh, as constraining choices of the the adversary, those kinds of things. Hmm. And I'm rather skeptical of all the uh, so-called incentivizing effects and so on. It seems to me that the most important contribution of sanctions in the present situation is simply to help to constrain the resources available to Russia on the battlefield. Mm. Mm. And so just as uh, the battlefield is showing all the signs of having settled down into a war of attrition, the same is true of sanctions. It's simply another form of pressure on the battlefield. Part of what was hoped, I think, was that economic sanctions would affect Russia's ability to replenish ammunition and equipment and degrade its tech capabilities because it would be running out of cash. But first of all, this has been a relatively low-tech war. And also, we see that non-Western regimes appear quite happy to keep supplying Russia on credit. So has it had the effect on the battlefield that was hoped? Not yet. To some extent, I I, I take an opposite view of what is required for the battlefield. It's not so much cash as resources. Uh, And and cash only matters to the extent that... uh, uh, Russia requires cash to obtain the resources it needs. And as you say, at the moment, Russia is a, a resource-rich country. Its shortages lie principally in the sort of high-tech fields of uh, uh, mm. chips and uh, so on. But I'm not sure that I'd call it a low-tech battlefield. In some ways, it shows uh, signs of being a very innovative battlefield with the, the, uh, the use of uh, missiles and drones and so on and so forth, uh, and, and also of, uh, the use of signals intelligence. To, to help to d- direct the battlefield. But the, f- the fact is that uh, we haven't been able to get Russia to run short of those resources at the present time. And, and Russia is being very inventive in, in finding workarounds and, uh, and so on to, to, to deal with its shortages. So the, the position I would like to advocate to you is not that sanctions have no effect, but that they take time. And mm. I think if your if your complaint is that before the event, many people thought that we would zap Russia with sanctions and these would have an immediate and catastrophic effect, then that was clearly oversold. Historically, the difficulty facing 
people studying sanctions has been that predictions of the effects of sanctions have always been over optimistic you know, in the last <laughs> century and uh, century and more that they have been practiced and and so uh, then they're put in place and nothing happens and then people lose attention and their attention drifts away to other things and we need more patience we need to have uh, more uh, accurate expectations and we need to understand that the importance of persistence and diligence and the fact that sanctions are a game you know, in this case uh, uh, we try to make it difficult for russia to import uh, high-tech munitions and so forth and the result has been a major redirection of russian trade away from europe and the united states towards uh, central asia and china mm. and this would have come as no surprise to uh, uh, British civil servants in 1914-15 watching the redirection of German trade in mm. the face of an Allied blockade. This is a very old story and one that sh shouldn't be a surprise, but it is. It's, people are always surprised yeah. when that happens. <laughs> My goodness, you know, the adversary responds, has countermeasures. We never thought that was possible. It's a, <laughs> it's a shame. Okay, well, well, let me ask you this then. If sanctions are a, a longer-burning um, fuse, as it were. Does that mean that they may be the right punishment for, let's say, a wicked policy, like apartheid, where you're trying to nudge a government into a, a change or a way to discourage an impending hostile move, but might be the wrong solution to a full-blown invasion that's already happened? I think on the occasions when sanctions have been effective, there's always been a tremendous imbalance of force on either side. Sanctions have been effective against weak adversaries. And Russia is not a weak adversary. Uh, Russia is, is rich in resources and also has friends. Essentially, we're looking at a war of attrition between two sides. Russia has resources, perhaps fewer friends than Ukraine. Ukraine has fewer resources and many friends. And really, it's a question of who's going to run out of those things first. Mm. When that happens, the war will come to a stop. You asked whether sanctions can ever incentivize better behavior. And I think when they're employed against great powers, the evidence really is no. If you look at the interwar period, Germany, Italy, Japan understood that imperialist aggression would be met by sanctions or by blockade. And they simply redesigned their military plans to uh, take that into account and to preempt it where they could. Okay, so looking at that balance of power, looking at how it can be uh, redressed, can economic sanctions ever be affected without countries like China or India on side? I mean, BRICS countries represent half the global population. It's a big market into which to sell cheap oil and buy materials and things. So is that the aspect that needs to be really the focus. Um, those countries that are a little bit on the fence. So uh, the position of neutral powers is very important in this. And it was important in, in the two world wars. I think that what served the purposes of allied victory in two world wars was a combination of pressure and of keeping the neutral powers on side and it was a delicate balance because, you know, in the present state, there's a very clear risk of cementing relations between Russia and China and India and, and so on. I mean, Turkey is a case in point, a, a NATO country that has mm. to some extent mm. 
temporized between the two sides and has vacillated. Turkey's own economic problems have now seem to be swinging Turkey back a bit more towards a, a, a pro-NATO position, but I, I'm not an expert on Turkish politics and I'll wait to see what happens. But certainly the fact that Britain and America are not as dominant in the world now as they were in uh, 1941 or in uh, 1917 is a major factor in our difficulties. I do think looking at the role that sanctions can play in the current conflict, it's important not to see them in isolation and not to think what can sanctions do on their own, because the answer is that sanctions can do very little on their own except push Russia towards more adventurism. So I, I think we always have to see the economic pressure in the context of the military factors that are at work. And in this case, I think that as sanctions are strengthened and as we try to reinforce sanctions, we should also be re reinforcing our military aid to Ukraine so that Russia is caught between them. You talk about reinforcing sanctions, the sort of ratchet effect. I, I receive a regular email from the EU Commission uh, with further sectors, companies, oligarch names that are sort of being added to the sanction list. I was looking for a UK equivalent, and I couldn't find actually any further steps that the UK has taken uh, after that initial big flurry sort of mm -hmm. a year and a half ago. Um, are we doing anything? Should we be doing more? Well, we should. But to me, the priority is not to add to the incredible list of sanctions that are already in place. And the vast majority of these are simply sanctions on individuals, which to my mind is not really or uh, shouldn't be the priority. I mean, it's morally right. satisfying to identify people who are doing wrong. But I mean, to be honest, you know, if um, in the middle of World War II, Britain had announced that uh, Heinrich Himmler would no longer be allowed to carry out transactions in Sterling, <laughs> would this really have made an iota of difference to the outcome of the war? I think not. It would have been a purely sort of demonstrative thing. And in a way, I think the problem is not so much adding to the list of, of sanctions as enforcing the sanctions that exist. As sanctions are put in place, the adversary adapts and finds yeah. workarounds, which should never be a surprise. What we aim for, or should aim for, is that the responses of the adversary should be costly mm -hmm. and that we should make them more costly by uh, you know, forcing continuous adaptation into more and more difficult options. That, that, that's the process. I've been seeing reports that a lot of companies, some of them big companies, are sort of actively circumventing Russian uh, sanctions by going through various intermediaries using third countries and, and things like that. I wonder, is that the sign of another thing that has fundamentally changed since the last big wars, as it were, that companies have become so global, so transnational, that they're no longer tied to any sort of loyalty to a particular side. They simply float above um, uh, sort of national concerns, above loyalty in many ways. Can anything be done to bring those companies to heel, as it were? I assure you that this is not new. Mm. And I, I mentioned 1914 a few, a few minutes ago. 
the autumn of 1914, the British put in place a naval blockade of German ports. At the same time, the British exports were surging to Netherlands and to Scandinavia. And these exports were surging to these neutral countries with, uh, you know, Netherlands case, a border with Germany, Scandinavia, just across the Baltic. And their own re-exports of British goods to Germany were surging. So there was simply exactly the, the kind of uh, common pattern that you find today. So it's not to do with any sort of loss of business morality or the rootlessness of business. I mean, corporations are opportunistic. And uh, this doesn't reflect any kind of pro-Russian sympathy or preference you know, for, 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 co- for fostering conflicts or anything of that sort. It's simply that you know, this is what businesses do. And it should be no surprise to anybody, but it should be something that we're aware of and then take steps to counter. Okay, so what steps can we take to counter? Well, now we come up against the problem that you alluded to a minute ago, which is that uh, half the world is neutral and we need to uh, bring these countries on side. And pressure is certainly part of it, but China is a difficult country to pressure. So in a way, I think one of the the most important sources of pressure must be a Western show of determination that Ukraine is not going to lose in this conflict. Mm. And speeding up the supply of military aid can be an important part of that. Pro-Russian forces in the world have to see that there is not going to be a slackening of Western resolve. We're not going to leave Ukraine in the lurch. Is there a way to increase uh, sanctions or increase their effectiveness? I take on board what you're saying about the sanctions being very high. I know that you've spoken in the past about the energy embargo being full of holes. Um, Is there something that can be done to fix that? Because that seems to me really central. If I may, I'll answer you in two parts. The first part is to say we're never going to be able to block off Russian trade altogether. Mm. What we should aim to do is to make it as costly as possible for Russia to obtain the resources that it needs for the battlefield. Yep. And that should be the goal. It's, it's, it's not about sealing Russia off, that's impossible, but about ramping up the cost of Russia's war effort. And economic warfare is always indirect. It always works, unfortunately. You know, the reality of economic warfare and sanctions is it works by hurting civilians. Yeah. And there's no way around that. So ultimately, if Russia is to be defeated in its war in Ukraine, it must be because it can no longer extract the resources from civilians that it needs to fight the war. And we can bring that moment forward by applying our own pressure to Russia's civilian sector. That's what sanctions Mm, mm. should aim to do. Now, you asked about Russia's oil exports. Now, I have a slightly heterodox view of this. Not everybody agrees with me, and I'm I'm not going to declare it as an article of faith. It's a matter of reasoning. I think that we should be doing as much as we can to be independent of Russian energy supplies in our own interests, because... Russia's ability to switch off energy exports to Western Europe has been a Russian weapon. Mm, mm. It's not our weapon, it's their weapon. And if you simply view it as an abstract balance of resources, I don't mind if Russia wants to sell us oil Mm. as long as we don't allow Russia to buy our goods in return. And that's where I think the, the most important 
sort of cutting edge of Western sanctions should be. It should be denying Russia the, the imports it needs. And Russia will find workarounds and, and alternative supplies, but we have to work to find, make those as costly as possible. Right. Now, Russia selling oil to the West uh, you know, does have multiple consequences. One is it's got a, a significant part of its economy that is not supplying the Russian war machine. It's supplying us, which is, as I said, something I don't mind. Mm. Of course, Russia's access to foreign currency is important, both uh, to its ability to purchase imports and uh, probably also to the payoffs, the internal payoffs within the regime. Putin's regime works through a complex system of, of, of payoffs within the elite. And access to dollars is part of that. So I understand that. And, and so uh, stopping that supply of dollars or euros it will have political consequences that I'm probably not so qualified mm. to comment on. But to me as, a, as an economist, the most important thing is to impede the supply of Russia's war effort. And that's to do with trying to, to uh, set up as many barriers as we can to Russia obtaining the imports it needs to put those chips on those missiles and make them fly to the right point. You mentioned that economic sanctions hurt civilians, and that's, that's how they work. Last week I was discussing uh, with Cindy Yu uh, on China about how Western leaders tend to project sort of electoral logic onto a country with no elections by thinking mm -hmm. Xi Jinping can't keep doing X because it's unpopular. And I wonder whether there's an element of this in how the West believes economic sanctions will work on Russia. I mean, in a country with no real elections, where truth is what the party wants it to be, hardship can actually be used perversely to harden a population into supporting the, the war. Um, how do you get around that? How, how do we cope with that? It's possible. And to the extent that it happens, it's hard to know how to get around it. I mean, war is polarizing, hmm. as hmm. I, I'm sure everybody understands. Once a country is involved in war, the, the pressure on everyone to salute the flag and uh, march to the tune of the leaders becomes very, very strong. Uh, you know, as we can see looking at Russia today, I mean, there is resistance, but it's, it's muted. And the penalties for those voicing resistance are often very severe. But I also think that we need to probe a little deeper into the stability or otherwise of the Putin regime. The way I, I would think of it is uh, Western leaders face an electoral constraint. Mm. There comes a point where the electors, the electors, the voters will toss out the government. A dictator like Putin doesn't face an electoral constraint, but he does face uh, some other kind of constraint somewhere, right? Uh, which is to do with the willingness of the ordinary people you know, to show up for work, to start exhibiting the sort of passive resistance that can undermine. So the tipping point might be higher, but there is a tipping point, is what you're saying. Somewhere there's a tipping point. Yeah. And, and, and someone like, like Putin, the last thing he wants to do is to find out where that tipping point is. Democratic leaders have it easy because they have access to opinion polls in which people would voice their true opinions. A dictator doesn't. A dictator has to guess in the dark where that tipping point might be and try never to go there because once, once you start to explore where that tipping point is, 
it's not only you that can observe it, other people can observe it too. Yeah. And that's very dangerous for a dictator. So uh, what we seem to see is that Putin went to war with, with a kind of agreement with Russian society, we'll fight this war, it'll be a quick limited campaign, go on living as normal. And that has not happened. So now he's having to mobilize more and more young men, uh, ramp up defense spending, uh, impose uh, some sacrifices on the civilian sector. And in the process, he's moving closer to wherever that tipping point is. And it may be that tipping point is still quite a long way away, but we don't know. I mean, th- we started off talking about that this is now a war of attrition. Yeah. Wars of attrition go on until they stop. And when they stop, it's all over suddenly. You know, you look at World War I was like that. People think of World War I as four years of blood and slaughter in the trenches. But behind the scenes, the ability of Germany to continue the war was being eaten away and away and away. And suddenly the time came when they couldn't continue the war any longer, despite the fact that only a few months earlier they won great victories on the Western Front. Yeah. And so to some extent, it's a bit like the phrase about bankruptcy. How does bankruptcy happen? It happens slowly and then fast. Mm. And we can't know any more than Putin can know when that point will come. Mm. But it will come to one side or the other. And we need to do all we can to make sure that it happens on Russia's side. Can, can I ask you as a final question something a little bit more intangible, a little bit more um, philosophical, I guess? Um, is there a, is there a part of the West that engages in a bit of magical thinking in believing that we can resolve bloody conflicts without getting our hands dirty in a way without boots on the ground without getting involved because all the previous conflicts that you've described we were involved in a military sense as well as the economic sanctions and the blockade yes. and the embargoes um so, so Is there a sense that because I think of Iraq and Afghanistan, there is now the West lacks the stomach to go all the way in on this thing and is using this as a sort of displacement activity would be the psychological term? I think there's a lot of truth in what you say. And in fact, I think it's in some ways worse because sanctions without a military threat amount and and I, i believe that the west's message to russia has been on our side don't attack ukraine or you will suffer economically but that's not the message that putin received the message that putin received was the west is economically strong but militarily weak strike now and change the facts hmm. and to that extent the West reliance on economic sanctions without simultaneously rearming and showing readiness to use force has precipitated this conflict. Professor Mark Harrison, thank you so much for your time and your expertise. You were incredibly clear with everything you said. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Remember, the other side of financial sanctions are financial incentives. So if you like our work, you can and should support our work. You can do so for as little as £3 a month on the funding platform Patreon. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. This is Alex Andreu in the bunker saying over and out.
I'm Ros Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now? The politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in a New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? That's Oh God, What Now? with me, Ros Taylor, Raphael Baer, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann-Ramirez, out now, wherever you get your podcasts. The Bunker was written and presented by Alex Andre. The producer was Chris Jones, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. The group editor is Andrew Harrison, with music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>